great to be back here in Monaghan. Thank you, Brian. Thank you to the Oversight for inviting me along to share on an important subject, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's great to be back with you. We've been singing about the Holy Spirit tonight. And we've been singing about being overcome with God's presence. I'm sure like me, you've made that connection. That it's because of the Holy Spirit in our midst that we experience the presence of God. And likewise, if the Holy Spirit is absent from our midst, the presence of God is absent. Yes, the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. But in terms of his tangible presence, if the Spirit of God is not able to move or is grieved, his presence is absent and we're aware of it. King David was aware of that possibility when he wrote Psalm 51. He wrote those words, cast me not away from your presence, Lord. And then he rephrased that by saying, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He brings the presence of God. And I'm so glad that God's presence is here tonight as we've been worshiping the Lord. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I'm still a member of a Pentecostal church. This church, Monaghan Elam, is a Pentecostal church. And one notable aspect about the Pentecostal church is its emphasis on both the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you're aware of that. That is what the Pentecostal church is known for. The importance of being filled, empowered, baptized in the Holy Spirit is, if you like, one of the crown jewels of the Pentecostal movement. What I need to say, though, before we go any further, is that just because a believer in Christ has had an experience of the Holy Spirit, just because a believer has been filled, empowered, baptized in the Holy Spirit, it does not make him or her a better Christian than some other believer who hasn't had such an experience. It's important I say that, and we be mindful of that. Although it doesn't make a believer a better, a better Christian, I would argue, though, that it can make a believer a more effective Christian. But it certainly doesn't make a believer a better Christian. And the reason why I, I just highlight that is because in the church today, and this has come in very subtly, but almost it's like a two-tier Christianity has infiltrated sectors of the church. And the way that has manifest itself is that you have believers in Christ who have had an experience with the Holy Spirit and they almost feel superior. And if you're in their company, you tend to feel inferior. And let me say that if you've been in such company of someone who's had a, a dynamic, spectacular experience in the, of the Holy Spirit and you've come away feeling somewhat inferior, I would question the possibility of a deficiency of the fruit of the Spirit in that person's life. And the same Holy Spirit who gives gifts and who empowers also produces fruit and instills that sense of Christ-likeness in a person's life. And it's important we keep those two aspects in balance. Well, we're going to be looking at this important subject over the next four weeks. And tonight, you've all, I assume, have been given a handout. And we're going to consider tonight two questions. Firstly, who is the Holy Spirit? And secondly, what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? And that term is very familiar to the Pentecostal movement. 
the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I don't know all of you. I know many of you here. I don't know your backgrounds. Some of you may be in this gathering and you've had minimal exposure to Pentecostalism. Now, the reason why I highlight Pentecostalism is I'm not putting one denomination above the other. I'm highlighting it simply for two reasons. Firstly, this is a Pentecostal church. And secondly, it is the Pentecostal movement who are known for emphasizing the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say other movements don't believe in such, but it tends to be a major tenant of the Pentecostal doctrine and belief. That's the only reasons I mention that. But irrespective of your church background, I can confidently assume that every person has heard about the Holy Spirit. We sing about him in our choruses and in our hymns. Your pastor, your minister, your rector, whatever your background, I can guarantee has referenced him in a sermon or, or in, in some aspect. But I want to encourage us tonight. And my prayer and my passion is that we move beyond that. You see, for many Christians, the Holy Spirit is really nothing more than a dove depicted in a stained glass window or a term referenced in some ancient church creed. When you contrast that with the early church, you see something very different. The Holy Spirit was central in the life of the early church. He was a living, dynamic reality. He was not just a reference in the benediction. He was a living, dynamic reality. He was central to church life and to the growth of the early church. So much so that in Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul met a group of believers at Ephesus, the very first thing he asked them, the very first words out of his mouth were these, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? When Paul wrote to the church at Galatians, he said this, he said, I just want to know this one thing from you. Just tell me this one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? There was such an emphasis on a person having an encounter with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was a living, dynamic reality in the life of the early church. Now, as we go through this series, ask yourself the question, is he a living, dynamic reality in my experience? Or is he just simply words that I sing every Sunday? Is he a living, dynamic reality? Paul says in Romans 8 9 that if anyone does not have this spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit. But what I find interesting is that when we would interact with people and get to know them, we would naturally ask them, are you saved? Are you born again? And yet when you look back at the early church, Paul's question was, have you received the Spirit? There's nothing wrong, and of course it's perfectly natural to ask a person, are they saved, are they born again? I just simply draw the distinction to show the contrast and the emphasis that perhaps, if we're honest, maybe we are lacking in our own lives, individually, and maybe even in our churches. Maybe we need to recapture and refocus and allow the Spirit of God to revolutionize our lives. We're going to be looking at who the Holy Spirit is tonight, concluding by 
asking the question, what is the baptism in the Spirit? Next week, we'll look from 1 Corinthians 12 at what Scripture talks about the manifestation of the Spirit. And that's simply how the Holy Spirit makes Himself known in our midst when we assemble as a body of believers for worship. On the third week, the penultimate week, we will just look from the Scripture at how we can facilitate the manifestation of the Spirit in our midst. How can we facilitate what the Scripture speaks about, the gifts of the Spirit operating? Now that needn't frighten anybody. Because you see, when the Holy Spirit is allowed to move, when we meet together, first of all, never forget the fact that He comes to glorify Jesus. He will glorify and honor Him. And when He's allowed to move, there will be decency, there will be order. There's nothing to be afraid of or nervous about. In Genesis chapter 1, when we read that the earth was without form and void and, it was, and darkness covered the earth, we read the Spirit hovered over the deep. And in response to the command of God, the Holy Spirit brought light out of darkness. He brought order when there was no order. And he does the same when we let him move. He will bring life. He'll bring order. And he will glorify Jesus. So let's think about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Many believers struggle to relate to the Holy Spirit. They have no problem relating to Jesus. If, like me, you came to faith at a very young age, you'd have been brought up perhaps reading children's Bible storybooks. I haven't seen any in recent times, but when I was growing up, whenever they would have a, a picture of Jesus, he was depicted as a man with long hair and a beard and a little half moon above his head. And the point is, we do not have a problem relating or accepting a person called Jesus. Even those who are not Christians acknowledge such a person walked this earth called Jesus of Nazareth. He's an historical figure. To us, he's more than that. He's the Son of God. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. But we generally do not struggle or wrestle with the fact that there's an individual, a man, a perfect man called Jesus Christ. When it comes to God the Father, even though we can't attribute any shape or form to Him, we somehow still accept the fact that there's some being way up there. We don't really have a problem relating to God the Father. But sometimes there can be that tension and there can be that struggle in relating to the Holy Spirit. People have questions. Is he wind? Is he water? Is he light? Is he liquid? Is he a force? Some kind of influence? He's not wind. He's like wind. He's not water. He's like water. And when it comes to considering the Holy Spirit, there are generally two misconceptions. Firstly, people struggle to accept the fact that he's a person and instead view him as some kind of influence or force. And the second misconception is there are those, yes, who accept the fact that he is a person, but somehow afford him an inferior position to God the Father and God the Son. Those are the two general misconceptions. But I want to suggest right from the outset, as we follow our outlines, that the Holy Spirit is a person. And to be a person means having a personality. And a personality implies the existence of at least three attributes. Intellect the ability to know things, the ability to understand things. 
emotions, feelings. And thirdly, volition, the ability to make decisions, to have a will. Those three attributes make up what we call a personality. And if the Holy Spirit is a person, he will possess those three attributes. He has intellect. He knows things. In your outline, I've quoted 1 Corinthians 2.11. For who knows a person's thoughts? Who knows? Except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has intellect. He knows the thoughts. He knows the heart of God. He has emotions. We know that God loves us. We quote John 3.16. Do you know that the Spirit also demonstrates love? Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He demonstrates love and empathy to us mere frail human beings living in a fallen world. Weak Vulnerable at times. The Holy Spirit draws alongside us and out of love and empathy helps us. He helps us pray. We do not, do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He helps us. He can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Brian mentioned that the spirits were sealed with the Spirit earlier. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. And in that same passage in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us how we can grieve the Holy Spirit in our individual lives and also in the life of the church Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to others. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. And in between those two verses, speaking about our tongue and what we speak, sandwiched in between those two verses in verse 30 is this command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, he can be grieved if we have bitterness and anger in our hearts and by what we say. The Spirit of God can be grieved. And as I said at the beginning, if the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the presence of God, we can grieve him. And when we grieve him, we lose that sense of God's presence. Yes, the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. He's ever-present. But sometimes we don't always perceive him to be present. And that can happen if we grieve the Holy Spirit who brings the presence of God. He can be quenched. 1 Thessalonians 4.19, there's that command. Do not quench the Holy Spirit of God. It's like throwing water on a fire to, to cause the fire to smolder. And when the Spirit of God moves in our lives and in our midst when we come together as a local church and is working in people's lives, we can quench Him. Many moves of God have been quenched and that's why they haven't gone on for longer periods. The Holy Spirit has volition, the ability to make decisions. He has a will, just like you and I have. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, speaking about the gifts of the Spirit, he says, all these are empowered by one and the same person, same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, he makes independent choices when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. He decides which member of the body gets which, what gift and when they get it. 
he makes decisions. He has volition. He can be sinned against. This is what scripture talks, calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He can be blasphemed. He can be sinned against. He can be insulted. The writer to the Hebrews says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? He can be insulted. The Holy Spirit encourages. The early church walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He comforts. He's called the comforter. He encourages. Let's ask ourselves the question. In light of what we have looked so far, can a force Can an influence love? Can an influence, can a force encourage? Can a force, can an influence be grieved? Can a force, can an influence make decisions? And the answer to all of those questions is no. But a person can. A person can love. A person can make decisions. A person can comfort. A person can encourage. I say all that to say this, the Holy Spirit is a person. Not a dove. He came like a dove, but he's not a dove, he's a person. A real, living, dynamic person. Throughout the scripture, we read of the Spirit guiding Restricting, filling, convicting, working. Only an active person can do those things. The Holy Spirit is a person, but not only is he a person, he is God himself. The Holy Spirit is God. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Notice the Holy Spirit is placed on the same level as the Father and the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Ephesians 2.22 We are told... The church, consisting of individual believers, is the temple of God, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It makes no sense to call the body of a believer, and even the church of Jesus Christ, it makes no sense to call these a temple of God, simply because the Holy Spirit indwells us. It makes no sense to call us the temple of God if the Holy Spirit who indwells us is not God. But it makes every sense to refer to us as the temple of God if the Holy Spirit is God and he indwells us. (coughs) Remember that occasion where Ananias and Sapphira lied about their giving. Just before they dropped down dead, Peter said these words, How is it you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. Tempting the Holy Spirit equates to lying to God. He is God. And because he is God, it shouldn't surprise us, he possesses the attributes that we associate God having. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful. We saw, I mentioned it earlier, his role in creation as the Spirit was hovering over the deep. Response to the word 
of God. He moved. He brought creation into being. He is all power. In Psalm 10430, the psalmist write, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, He's all powerful. He's omniscient, He's all knowing, He knows everything. I quoted this earlier. Who knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God? Not only is he omniscient, all-knowing, he's also omnipresent. He's everywhere. David writes in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. He's everywhere. Because he's God. He's omniscient. A few references there just again speak that he has deity, that he is God. He's the eternal spirit, Hebrews 4.19. He's the spirit of glory, the spirit of grace, the spirit of life, spirit of truth, spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit is God. He was a living dynamic reality in the early church. Is he a living, dynamic reality in your life, in my life? Have you ever considered your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Yes, we know our relationship with God. We know about our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've trusted him as Lord and Savior. Do we ever consider our relationship with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 14, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Think about the time in your life just before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. What happened? You experienced conviction. You experienced conviction. It was the Holy Spirit who convicted you. Think about the person who witnessed to you. Maybe it was somebody at school, fellow worker, preacher, parent, brother, sister, son, daughter, father, mother. The Holy Spirit, whoever that individual was, the Holy Spirit prompted them to witness to you. The Holy Spirit burdened them to pray for you. The Holy Spirit anointed them and empowered them and gave them boldness to share the truth of the gospel with you. The Holy Spirit was active in your life and mine before we came to faith. And through that person's witness, he brought then conviction to you and me. And when we responded to the gospel and put our faith and trust in Christ, the same Holy Spirit who prompted, empowered the one to witness to us, who brought conviction to us, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, that same Holy Spirit now took up residence within us. He has been active in your life and mine right from the beginning. Are you aware of his presence in your life? Do you know his power? How is your relationship with the Holy Spirit? You see, we emphasize and focus, and rightly so, our relationship with God. 
the importance of putting our trust in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I said from the very outset, when we look at the, 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 the book of Acts and the life of the early church, there was a greater, perhaps, emphasis then than there is today on the Holy Spirit. How do you relate to the Spirit? Do you realize that He helps you pray? We saw it earlier in Romans 8, 26. <clears throat> when we don't know how to pray as we ought to, and the times when we don't know what to pray for, or even don't feel like praying, the Holy Spirit, out of love and empathy, draws alongside us and helps us, and takes our inadequacies, and our simple words, and presents them to the Father. Not only that, but He enables us pray to the Father in an unknown heavenly language called the gift of tongues when our words are seemingly inadequate to express ourselves to God. He helps us pray. He helps us worship God. God is spirit, Jesus said. And those who worship Him Worship Him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. He helps us worship God. Are you aware? Am I aware of His help when it comes to worshiping God? Do I ask and avail of His help? Do you ask? Do you avail of His help? He helps us cultivate intimacy with God. Do you remember when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane? Out of great anguish of soul, what did he say? He addressed the Father with these words, Abba, Father. That's the language of intimacy. Abba is an Aramaic word that literally means daddy. That's intimate. Abba, Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He called him Abba Father. When Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 6, he wrote these words, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba Father. See, the Holy Spirit echoes. He reproduces the intimate language of Jesus to the Father. He reproduces that language in the heart of every believer. The Holy Spirit seeks to cultivate intimacy in our lives for the Father. In Romans 8, 15, we're told that we haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus displayed intimacy with the Father by calling him Abba. The Spirit of God comes into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, echoing that language of intimacy. And as we yield to the Spirit of God, in Romans 8.15, we too cry, Abba, Father. The progression of echoing and reproducing that intimate language in our hearts, the Spirit of God seeks to cultivate that intimacy between us and God. Are you aware of His help? Do we ignore the Holy Spirit? We don't ignore the Father, we don't ignore the Son. But I wonder, do we at times sideline the Holy Spirit? Forget about Him. He helps us cultivate intimacy. Romans 5.5 5 says, 
the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Our hearts, not being the organ that pumps blood around the body, but the seat of emotions, feelings. And the Holy Spirit brings the love of God into our hearts. And do you realize what that means? When the Holy Spirit brings the love of God into our hearts, we cannot but feel the presence and the love of God. This is an objective truth, but it's also a subjective experience where the love of God is touching your heart and mine by the Holy Spirit. That is something you experience. He seeks to bring us into intimacy. Through Him, Jesus, we have both access in one Spirit to the Father, Ephesians 2.18. Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we belong to him. How are you relating to the Holy Spirit? How am I relating to the Holy Spirit? He has a ministry to fulfill until the Lord comes back. And that ministry will be fulfilled through you and me. In John 16, verses 8 through to 11, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. He convicted you of sin. He convicted me of sin. He convicts of righteousness. He lets people know that their standard of good, their standard of righteousness and good living. He lets them know, he convicts them that it is deficient in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And he convicts of judgment. And guess what? The Holy Spirit does all of those through you and me. Through our witness to those we come in contact with. We need him. We need his power to enable us be witnesses for Christ. We need his power to enable us be vessels that the Holy Spirit can convict through us to those that we pray and are concerned for and come in contact with. Jesus said prior to his ascension, John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He went on to say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Jamaria and to the end of the earth. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? John the Baptist was the first person to introduce that term in the Bible. And interestingly, and I would say significantly, he introduced it against the backdrop of him baptizing people by immersion in the River Jordan. I think that backdrop speaks volumes when it comes to understanding what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. John introduces us to the term. Jesus restates it in Acts 1. And then two more New Testament writers pick it up. Luke and Paul. Both of them speak about being baptized in the Spirit. But both present this term in different ways. They're not contradicting one another. They just have different emphases. 
Luke, for example, as you read through the book of Acts, speaks about people being baptized in the Spirit, speaks of the Spirit coming upon people, people being filled, the Spirit being poured out, people receiving, Spirit being given, the Spirit falling on people. And as you consider those terms, as you read through the book of Acts, you will see that Luke is emphasizing very strongly that to be baptized in the Spirit and to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit is a powerful, dynamic encounter. It's not just something that you can infer by faith, I'm a believer. It's a living reality. It's something tangible, something powerful and dynamic. And furthermore, When Luke speaks about it in Acts, he often cites accompanying evidence to such an encounter. The most common evidence that Luke cites is speaking in other tongues. He also speaks about prophesying. And in Acts 4.31, he speaks about receiving boldness when one is filled with the Spirit. So much so, and Luke records this for us, I believe purposely, and in Acts 19.2, when Paul asked the question, did you receive the Spirit to those disciples at Ephesus? By asking that question, Paul clearly expected an either yes or no answer. In other words, he expected them to say yes or no, and if they said yes, they had evidence to show and to prove and to be convinced they had received the Spirit. If you have the flu, you know you have it. And if somebody asks you, do you have it, you can say yes. Why? You can point to the evidence in your physical body. There's no if, buts, or maybes. It's a yes or no. And Paul clearly expected a yes or no answer when he asked those disciples, did you receive the Spirit? Whenever you read through Paul's writings, as Paul writes his epistles, he presents this term, baptism in the Spirit, somewhat differently from Luke. And as I said, it's not a contradiction, just a different emphasis. But actually, the two do complement one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now let's just consider this for a moment. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In other words, we were made to become members of the body of Christ. So let's just logically analyze this. When do we become members of the body of Christ? And the answer is conversion, salvation. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, at that very moment we are made a member of his body, his church. And yet Paul equates that with being baptized by the Spirit. In one Spirit we are baptized into one body. And so it would seem to suggest that for Paul, one is baptized in the Spirit the moment they put their faith and trust in Christ. What Paul is saying here is, I should say, the way he is presenting baptism in the Spirit is really a metaphor to describe the entire Christian life. a metaphor to describe your trust in Christ at salvation right through to your death or if the Lord tarries to our being taken away with him. It describes your Christian experience, your entire life in Christ. says in Galatians 3a, having begun by the Spirit, you're now made perfect by the flesh, having begun by the Spirit, the Spirit's there at the beginning of your life in Christ. 
In Titus 3, 5, 6, he writes, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the reason why I've brought Luke and Paul's presentation of what it means to be baptized in the Spirit is simply this. And I will show that they're not contradicting one another. If you were to ask someone from the Pentecostal tradition, have you been baptized in the Spirit? If they have, they will tell you, and for a scriptural basis, they will look at the book of Acts. If you ask someone from one of the historic churches, the mainline denomination, somebody from the Reformed faith, have you been baptized in the Spirit? They too will say yes. But they won't look to the book of Acts. They will look to Paul's writings in his epistles. Namely the one I've just quoted in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And from a scriptural standpoint, both camps are absolutely correct. The question I want to ask us tonight is not... Have you been baptized in the Spirit? The question I want to ask is, have you been baptized in the Spirit with biblical evidence? You see, although Paul presents Spirit baptism as a metaphor for the Christian life, included in that, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, when he writes to the Corinthians... He encourages them to desire spiritual gifts. He encourages them to speak in tongues. He encourages them to prophesy. The same kind of phenomenon and evidence we see in Luke's account in the book of Acts. Paul equally emphasizes it, but he just broadens the whole terminology to include the entire Christian life. It's not either or for Paul, it's both. That's why I ask the question again. Not have you been baptized in the Spirit, but have you been baptized in the Spirit with biblical evidence that's in the book of Acts that Paul stresses and encourages in his letter to the Corinthians? And you can answer that just simply yes or no. Ask yourself the question. Have I been baptized in the Spirit with biblical evidence? Evidence. Not just something that I can infer by faith because I'm a child of God, but do I have that biblical evidence that's recorded in Acts and that Paul encourages the church to seek after? I said a few moments ago that when John coined that term, speaking of Jesus, he'll baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. He said that against the backdrop of the River Jordan, where he was immersing people. And it's interesting that that word baptism is used as that metaphor to describe the believer's experience of the Holy Spirit. Because you see, for those of us who have been baptized in water, when you come up out of that water, you are drenched. You are saturated with water. baptized in the Spirit with biblical evidence we should be saturated with the presence the power of the Spirit in our lives and it's something we should be aware of not something we just declare and accept by faith something we can point to say yes or no have you been baptized in the Spirit with biblical evidence? I'm not one for formulas or steps, but I just for by way of practical guidelines. <clears throat> if you've answered no to that question, and you want to be, I've just let out a few practical things you can do. Ask. James says we have not because we ask not. 
But Jesus said, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Whenever Luke, both in the book of Acts and in his gospel, wrote about people being filled with the Holy Spirit, he highlighted some kind of overflow from the mouth. It may have been an eruption of praise. It may have been prophesying. And in the book of Acts, the most common evidence he cites was speaking in other tongues. Prayers, prophesying, speaking in tongues, they all came out of the mouth. That was the overflow of being filled, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 4, in the day of Pentecost, it says they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, when you are filled, when you are empowered, whether it be spontaneous prayers or prophesying or speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit doesn't do the speaking. You do. I do. He gives the utterance. But we do the speaking. And I say this, and I'm in no way trying to plant any kind of suggestion or be manipulative. It's purely practical and as a means of preparation. Because if you tonight, here or in the privacy of your own home, recognize that you haven't been baptized with the Spirit, with biblical evidence, and you want to, and you seek God and ask Him, to fill you, to baptize you. And if you want to, to speak in other tongues as outlined in the book of Acts, just be open to him. But if you find some kind of words forming in your mind, be it praise, be it prophesying, be it unusual words you can't make of, that's the language of the Holy Spirit. I say that just to prepare you, not to plant any kind of suggestion in your mind, but to encourage you to yield and speak it out. Here is the, the promise you have, the absolute guarantee to remove any fear. Jesus said, if a father asks, if a son asks his father for bread, he will not give him a stone. If he asks him for a fish, he will not give him a serpent. If you ask in faith for the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the Spirit, that's what God will give you. If you ask, if a son asks the father for a fish, he won't be given a serpent. If he asks for an egg, he won't be given a scorpion. Interestingly, serpents and scorpions are, are depictions of demonic activity. And so I think Jesus purposely used those two uh, items to reassure you will not be given anything demonic if you ask to be baptized in the Spirit, despite what you may have heard by way of propaganda about speaking in tongues or being baptized in the Spirit. You won't be given a serpent or a snake. You won't be given anything demonic. But how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's just pray.